0: Princess Who Became Peddler Tells Her Own Story of Moscow by Princess Nina Zizianov. From The New York Times, April 17, 1921. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Princess Who Became Peddler Tells Her Own Story of Moscow by Princess Nina Zizianov. The author of this vivid account of life in Soviet Russia is the widow of a distant relative of the Russian imperial family. He was killed in the war. After enduring many hardships, being reduced to making her living by selling clothes in the Petrograd marketplace, and narrowly escaping death by shooting at the hands of the Bolsheviki, the princess succeeded in getting away from Russia about three months ago. Reaching Narva in Estonia, she volunteered to help the Red Cross representatives caring for Russian refugees. Afterwards, she went to Vienna, where she wrote her account of Soviet Russia. In order to understand well the present situation in Russia, one must realize that all of this vast Russia in the hands of the Soviets is nothing but one great barracks, an immense regiment where every man from 15 to 55 and every woman from 15 to 45, is a passive instrument in the hands of a band of brigands. This whole mass, called the proletariat, to which had been promised lands, liberty, the ownership of everything, is at present a silent horde, hungry, persecuted, and brutalized, a lot of beasts having nothing in common with the human beings of the rest of Europe but external appearance, controlled by terror, And above all, by hunger. This mass has no volition. It no longer thinks. It no longer hopes. It is paralyzed. The Bolshevist government possesses an intelligence superior to anything I have known up to now. So well versed is it in human psychology that one is compelled to admire its knowledge of human vices and faults, and especially its ability to exploit these for the gratification of its desires. The Bolshevist system is comparable with that tiny insect which attacks a certain big caterpillar more than 1,000 times its size, bites the latter in the spinal column, paralyzes it, and then, installing itself with its progeny on the victim, devours it little by little while it is still alive. The Russians are children. They believe everything, want everything, think everything possible. They believe in fairy stories. Are overjoyed by the merest trifle, and when misfortune comes, their innate fatalism deadens them and makes them endure the worst sort of existence. When I was in Siberia, I saw convicts who had been chained hand and foot for 25 years, condemned for life. The Russian nation gives one the same impression. Dragging its chain, it no longer even hopes for death. When the Bolsheviki seized the government, They promised the Russian people equality in all relating to individual property, which was to be divided, honestly, among all the proletarian class. The intellectual class was to be totally destroyed. All factories were requisitioned. All houses, all apartments, linen, furniture, automobiles, especially those of the bourgeoisie, were considered proletarian property. The government said, all this belongs to you you have suffered. These leeches have drunk your blood. They have grown rich from your toil, from your bodies. We return to you all this. Take houses, furniture, clothes, all is yours. And the people took as much and more than they could hold. For three months they lived in a paradise. Everybody was a master, a director. There were no more servants, all commanded, and there was nobody to obey or work, nothing but commanders. At the end of three months, everything was out of gear. All the machines were stopped at all the factories. Life began to be a void. Then the government showed itself in its true colors as a ruthless capitalist. It put the workers back in their places to do 12 hours of daily work under iron discipline. The government, which had declared the people to be the collective proprietor, has since decreed that it, the Soviet government, is the sole proprietor of everything. Power of life and death. There, then, is the elucidation of the Bolshevist thesis. The technical personnel at the factories, which had been driven away and replaced by workmen, were restored to their posts to work as before, and to keep them under surveillance, a Soviet council of administration was set up, composed of six so-called workers, who are communists bound by oath, Informers and spies who watch over one and all, who have the power of life and death, who even have the right to kill anyone on the spot. People in general have arrived at such a pitch of suffering in Russia that they have become indifferent. One risks one's life from morning to night. The purchase of food is forbidden under pain of death, yet one's life is spent looking for it. It is forbidden under pain of death to sell furniture or garments. Recently, even the sale of books was prohibited, and they were declared national property. Yet, more than half the population keeps alive by selling personal effects, and the other half, namely the new class in process of formation, has but one ideal, the purchase of second-hand furniture. The women of this class have a regular mania for learning piano playing. I obtained not a little bread for my friends by procuring them pupils from among the market women I knew, and they were certainly very laughable pupils. In my business of clothes seller, at a covered market where I came in contact with the people from nine in the morning to two in the afternoon, where my clientele was composed principally of proletarians, and where I had the opportunity to study this class and become acquainted with its members thoroughly— I never had occasion for complaint. The Russian people might have behaved terribly, for they have been systematically incited against the bourgeoisie, and there are always agents paid by the government who seek to arouse the lower classes against the bourgeoisie. Yet none of these efforts succeeded. All that is needed is calm, a few simple words going straight to the heart, words such as one would use to a child, in order to direct the Russians as one will. The Russian people have become vulgar and arrogant, but they obey willingly when they recognize sincerity. They wish to be commanded by persons more cultivated than themselves, and they have not the slightest compunction, especially when in large numbers and including women, in taunting the representatives of the government with being of like lowly origin and therefore not qualified to be leaders." Until last summer, one could live by selling personal belongings. The streets adjacent to the markets were crowded with sellers. All sorts of things were offered for sale. Wonderful objects were sold for practically nothing. I've seen rare pieces of porcelain sold as ordinary chinaware. I've seen a platinum snuff box go for about five francs. I did not dare buy it, feeling sure that it had been stolen or was offered by some informer in order to trap me. Raids were constantly made in which all merchandise was confiscated and the dealer arrested. As a Market Woman, I was taken prisoner in some ten of these raids. How well I came to know the galloping of the horses behind us, the noise of the shooting. I was in prison four times. Twice I escaped with my merchandise. Once a soldier led me off, ostensibly to prison but only to let me get away at the corner of the street. Never was I searched, though searching was the regular custom, notwithstanding I had upon my person the money of my customers. Later I had a booth and was registered as a market woman at the Kuznetchny market. There one was safe from raids, but a prey to the commissaries, the police, and their wives. My booth was considered the most chic. My acquaintances brought me the stuff to sell, and the people of the lower classes ordered goods from me. It was in this way that I could get work and lessons for my friends, because my booth became a regular salon. Policemen, commissaries, and wives of commissaries took from my booth whatever they wished, leaving it to me to reimburse my client. But I earned from 20000 to 30000 rubles a day, just enough for buying bread, potatoes, and a little fat. Never during all that period did I eat at one and the same meal bread, butter, sugar, and meat. But I was one of those favored by fortune. Sometimes I ate meat, thanks to my dealings with the lower classes, and at times I even had milk. In July, the government made all the market folk pay their taxes in advance up to October, for the festival of the Internationale was approaching, and it needed money. I was obliged to pay 65,000 rubles. To do it, I had to sell my last pair of silk stockings, which, to be sure, were pretty well worn out. On July 12th, at 11 o'clock in the morning, the market was surrounded by communists and horsemen, and shots were fired into the crowd, killing 10 persons. Everybody was arrested, and all buyers relieved of everything and immediately sent away to forced labor. At noon, motor trucks took away all the merchandise. Used clothes, it had been said, were not liable to requisition or confiscation, but everything was taken from me. I escaped by a miracle, thanks to my coolness. At once, I took steps toward recovering the goods taken from me, and after much trouble, I managed to get aid from Madame Maria Andreev, a well-known actress, the wife of Maxime Gorky. But I only recovered one-fifth of the goods. The rest having been stolen by the faithful agents of the government. On the same day, the government closed and sealed up some shops that were still open, selling perfumery and porcelain. At these, the same things happened as at the market sellers and buyers were arrested, and the merchandise was sent to storehouses to be distributed among the families of workmen, apparently. It is forbidden to have servants. All who were formerly servants have become government employees. Obligatory courses have been established, lasting two hours a day for nine weeks, and it is noted upon each individual's bread card whether the holder is taking these courses, and he gets no bread if he plays truant. The only favorable results to the government of this system are discipline and the teaching of the alphabet. These former servants smoke cigarettes, dress up outrageously, polish their nails, leaving the dirt underneath. And at national celebrations, form groups and shout, Long live Red Russia! They also know how to telephone. Those things are all they do. Another duty of communists is to denounce and cause the arrest of the bourgeois. Arrests are made at night. If anyone succeeds in escaping, the fugitive's family, even to the children, are arrested. Scientists or any unfortunates who have studied have little chance of escaping from Russia alive. The government, which needs educated men, has a strange way of attracting them to its service. It has them tried, condemned, led beneath a wall, and then led back to prison. This game is repeated several times in succession, sometimes for weeks. When the government thinks the unfortunate victim is at the end of his objections, he is offered a government post. A man of my acquaintance, a judge who lost his position when the government decreed its new laws, was nevertheless reappointed. For the sake of his old mother, he accepted. On the first day of the resumption of his work, he returned from court and said to his mother, I cannot occupy that post, because this morning 42 persons were brought to me, and all I had to do was ask them their civil status and sign their sentence to be executed tonight. I cannot do such work. He then kissed his mother, went to his room, and hanged himself. I know of another case of an old owner of real estate who became so terrified by these condemnations to execution that he went crazy and was turned back in this state to his family. There are many who remain steadfast to their beliefs and sacrifice their families, but I know unfortunately of many more cases of persons bowing to the demands of the government and becoming more fanatical communists than the communists themselves. In Russia, the position of women is no better than that of men, because if a woman does not work, she gets nothing to eat. If she serves the government, she has rations assured to her unless she marries. Marriage is very easy, as the Bolshevist law requires only two witnesses and the signature. Divorce is even easier. One can get married, divorced, and remarried within a fortnight. The government has decreed that all children from six years of age shall be taken from their parents and placed in a boarding school, which is a barracks, where they have instilled into them the ideas, which, according to the Bolsheviki, are destined to rule the world. These poor children receive no care. Their dormitories are not heated. They lack sufficient clothing and nourishment. The government, up to the present, has provided generously and sufficiently, but everything is stolen especially honorable mention is deserved by the teachers, men and women, who do all in their power to give the children the parental affection of which they have been deprived. It is heartbreaking to see processions of children, haggard, yellow, in rags, badly shod, barefoot in summer, led by their teachers, who cast upon you agonized glances. On the street, people do not speak to each other except with their eyes and they tell each other many despairing things. But the worst nightmare of all is to see children, the very little ones at the head, led to the national festivals and funerals. A communist is always buried with great pomp, with his picture borne aloft before his body and surrounded by children carrying little red flags, which they must wave. These children sing songs with refrains like this, Long live our red liberty! Long live our liberty, which is the death of all the bourgeois. We have neither father nor mother. The Soviet is our family. Children over eight years old are all impossible, untamable little brigands. They have heard so often that they are the nation of the future, that old people are bound to disappear, that they find it quite natural to tell these things to every passerby. Their education comes to them from the street. There are not grown-ups enough to watch over them. They have been installed haphazard in houses, and as the houses in Petrograd have no gardens and the streets are devoid of traffic, there being no vehicles, they get all their recreation in the street. There are persons in Russia who never take off their clothes, they have no change of outer garments or linen, and the rooms are too cold to allow of their undressing. All the walls of Petrograd are so damp that on account of climate and lack of heating, they drip water. Several times every day, one may see persons lying on the sidewalk, waiting for help or for death. This is especially true among the old bourgeoisie, who have not been able to adapt themselves to the new regime, who cannot realize the change, and obstinately insist on waiting for somebody to help them. Agent Provocateurs These people still consider work a disgrace. I have been insulted by my acquaintances because I had the courage to become a dealer in clothing and have a booth at the market. They would not have done this for anything in the world. They prefer, a shameful admission, to serve the government. The Russian upper bourgeoisie and nobility have behaved and are behaving in an ignoble manner. They've offered their services en masse and accept any kind of employment. On the list of agents provocateurs serving the secret police, there are 14 well-known names. They make propositions to sell jewels, paintings, securities, etc., and then cause the purchaser to be arrested, whereupon they pocket 10% of the total sum involved. The government knows full well what value to place on their fidelity, and it gives them tragic tasks. When one of these personages enters its service, he receives a post carrying with it great responsibility. He must know how to massacre people. To execute people is the first law of a good communist. Human life is worthless. In one month, 18 of my acquaintances were shot. It becomes a mere commonplace to hear of the disappearance of somebody, and every night one expects to be taken off oneself. Russians have become genuine fatalists. When a member of one's family or an acquaintance does not turn up some evening, one ascertains whether any raids have taken place, and if so, one goes off to the prison to look the missing person up. It is dangerous to make visits because, as informing is an everyday matter, it often happens that a trap has been laid at the house of those whom one visits. People are arrested with or without reason. Perhaps one has tried to sell furniture or buy something, or perhaps there is a belief to this effect. Perhaps a Bolshevist commissary or some other Bolshevist may desire your apartment or furniture, in which case you are led away and some soldiers are placed in your apartment for 10 days or so, during which everyone putting in an appearance there is arrested, so that it often happens that because of the arrest of one person, 20 others are also taken and kept in prison for weeks. Nothing in Russia surprises one any longer. As soon as it becomes clear that a person is missing, measures are taken to find out as soon as possible where he or she is and to take the prisoner food, since none is provided in the prisons. It is forbidden to find out why anyone has been apprehended. There is nothing to do but wait. Often when you go up to the wicket at the prison, you are told that there is no longer any need of inquiring about so-and-so. Justice has been done. For these reasons, one never goes anywhere without leaving word as to where one is going. The sailors play an important role in the history of Soviet Russia. They have never accepted the Soviet government and still hold to the program mapped out at the time of the abdication of the Tsar. They desire free elections, a parliament, a republic, etc. There are constant revolts of sailors, to which the government always knuckles down and grants concessions. The sailors refuse to accept a council of control, and no kind of government agent has the right to set foot on a naval ship or in a building. If he does, he's thrown into the water. The sailors have retained their old officers. As soon as the government does anything against anyone or anything belonging to them, they train their guns on Petrograd. The stay of the sailors at Kronstadt is a constant peril to the government. A sword of Damocles, and for this reason the sailors are in a privileged position. Furs are often distributed to them, and one often sees sailors and their wives wearing furs of great value, which of course have been requisitioned by the government, requisitioned being the polite formula for stolen. Gala theatrical performances. Gala theatrical performances are held for the sailors and their families in what was formerly the Imperial Theatres. The famous Russian ballet is almost entirely at the services of sailors and commissaries, for mere civilians have not the right to attend its performances. The latter are allowed to go only to the moving pictures, but as there are raids in the picture houses almost every night, only communists and sailors are to be found there also. These sailors receive several pounds of butter every month. It must be admitted that they are clean and well-groomed, And even when they install themselves forcibly in apartments, the former occupant may console himself a bit with the thought that it is a sailor who is occupying the premises. Not infrequently, one finds them protecting the public against the Bolshevist commissaries. This was especially the case when the markets were still in existence. There is a possibility of saving Russia through the sailors if help is extended to them. This is quite feasible. The sailors have maintained their old-time discipline and often say that they are not serving the government but their country. They are the only Russians who have a certain tinge of patriotism. Obligatory infiltration of communism is unknown among them. There are, on the average, two communists among every hundred workers and soldiers, and the same proportion is true in the general public. Every communist carries two revolvers, where the rest are unarmed. The soldiers drill with sticks. Even when sent to the front, they carry no weapons. Only when going into battle do they receive any. Misery among troops. The soldiers have been shut up in barracks for about a year. They are badly fed and forbidden to return to their native villages. Physical and moral misery is enormous among the troops, so that they desert en masse whenever they get a chance. At Krasnocello, during one night, in one camp alone, 800 soldiers, the entire force occupying one of the barracks, including the communist inspectors, deserted and were not retaken. As for the officers, they were shot. The misery at the front is incredible. Badly fed, barefooted, the soldiers are driven into battle by the communists behind them, who shoot them down with revolvers if they show signs of retreating. There's no aid for the wounded. The Red Cross does not exist. There are no medicines, no instruments, no nurses. The wounded die of their wounds or freeze where they lie. Woe to him who falls. His comrades undress him and relieve him of everything. Hundreds of persons, including myself, saw, several nights in succession in Petrograd, motor trucks, in which hundreds of corpses of men, naked, frozen, and bundled together, were being carried uncovered across the city to the big factories we could not find out the reason. When a foreign communistic delegation arrives, one knows about it because the principal streets through which the delegates are to go are put into more or less decent condition. For instance, the roadways are repaved. These roadways are paved with blocks of wood, which greatly pleases the populace, who take away the wood at night for heating purposes. The visiting communistic delegations see some elite troops, Letts, Estonians, or Bashkirs well-clothed and shod, armed with rifles. The visitors are allowed to be present at conferences, popular meetings, big parades, and big speeches made by Zinoviev, surrounded by his staff, with a pomp recalling the old days of the empire. In 1918, I was arrested by the Bolsheviki at a sanatorium near Moscow, and I was to be deported to Perm with the Grand Duchess Elizabeth, sister of the Empress, and two sons of the Grand Duke Constantine. All of these were shot there. Thanks to Baron Harshausen, Danish Consul General, I was freed after many efforts of his, and through him I made the acquaintance of Karakhan and Tichurin. Soviet money has no value except in food. The Soviets print at least a billion a month and change their notes every month. These are very easily counterfeited. In the country, only Romanov money is accepted. All food is paid for in Romanov money or in merchandise. Commissaries and communists demand payment in Romanov on all transactions. Workers and peasants have trunks full of banknotes which are worthless. Dirt and disease A kilogram, two and one-fifth pounds, of bread costs from 6,000 to 8,000 rubles. A kilogram of butter costs 50,000. A kilogram of sugar, 50,000 a pair of shoes from 150,000 to 200,000 rubles, a needle costs from 100 to 200, a spool of black thread 6,000 rubles, one of white thread 3,000. It is forbidden under penalty of death to sell or buy these. The government divides a spool of thread among from 180 to 200 persons, which comes to about one meter and a half, about five feet apiece. To live in miserable fashion, that is, on 400 grams of bread, 2 pounds of potatoes, 50 grams of fat, a piece of sugar, you must pay 10,000 rubles. An egg costs some 700 rubles, a kilogram of gray flour, 5,000 rubles, one of salt, unobtainable now, 5,000 to 6,000. Many persons have lived without salt for months. Civilians receive officially 150 grams of bread, but when weighed, this ration scarcely reaches 100. Always the same system of robbery. There is also a soup at one ruble, which one must go to get at the public kitchen. It is officially made up of 15 grams of gruel and salted water. The public kitchens, like all other Soviet establishments, are shockingly dirty. No soap, no brush, no service, no room ever cleaned. Often, almost every day in fact, there are 3,000 to 4,000 visitors at a public kitchen, and there are about 50 in Petrograd. During the summer, at a kitchen in Latini, 200 persons became ill of Glanders because they had been served horse meat. They were in the Runov hospital, and it was decided to shoot them. There were about 10 children and 100 women among them. The Russian soldiers refused to execute them and it was necessary to employ Buryat soldiers, who are the Mongols of Manchuria. Among them were also about 30 students who asked and received poison and killed themselves. For more than two years, there's been no hygiene, although there is a special government branch for it, and new hygienic laws are continually being passed. Many houses have had to be abandoned because the water pipes had broken and soaked the walls with water, and, as the houses were not heated, This water had frozen and caused piping and walls to burst. Typhus, dysentery, cholera, influenza, and scurvy have gained a permanent foothold. The law requires that the sick be taken to a hospital, but this means certain death, as there are no medicines, doctors, care, nor heat. There's no hot water for cleaning instruments, no alcohol for disinfecting them, no oil for heating water, no toilet. The sick are crowded indiscriminately together, those suffering contagious diseases pell-mell among those requiring an operation. The food is the same as at the public kitchens. The heat is no higher than body heat, for there is no artificial heating. The sick lie on furs, wear furs, have fur headgear. The doctors cannot operate on account of the cold, and sometimes also on account of being physically too weak. Funerals are nationalized. Only the government buries. Sometimes it delays five or six days in summer, and we've had cases of deaths from dysentery, cholera, and typhoid when the corpse has lain six days in a private house before burial. In the very house where I lived, we had a man die of cholera and remain four days in summer before being removed. Religious burial has been suppressed. Cost of Dying A coffin costs 40,000 rubles, the digging of a grave 40,000. The dead lie for whole days at the cemetery before being buried. Every morning, motor trucks loaded with dead leave the hospitals. Going on summer mornings to the market, I have seen trucks pass leaving stains of blood in the mud behind them. The mortality is frightful. People die without apparent illness. My doctor, who had formerly been the head of the principal Petrograd Hospital, was discharged and is living in abject poverty like all intellectuals. He, as a specialist, has compiled trustworthy statistics and has proven to me that 8% of the population are actually dying of hunger. The majority of the people one sees on the streets have a greenish-gray tinge to their skin. Nearly all have gray hair. There are people who have not eaten fats for almost two years. Their food consists of 150 grams of bread and of soup from the public kitchens. There are also people whose faces are bloated as though filled with water. Such is the situation of property owners, bankers, manufacturers, doctors, engineers, lawyers, judges, in short, of all intellectuals. They are dying like flies. The misery is so great that people even eat potato peelings. They cook turnip leaves. I did not serve under the Bolsheviki, although I was a nurse and without money. But two hours after crossing the Estonian frontier, I was at work in a concentration camp where there were 4,000 refugees and former prisoners of war. I took two trainloads of 1,200 persons each, one to Stettin, the other to Bohemia. At Narva, the Red Cross, which is composed of one representative from Switzerland, one from Germany, and one from the American YMCA, is working admirably, but there are no nurses, and I promise to return in the summer. The Bolsheviki offered me a place as commissary, which I naturally did not accept, and it was for fear of their vengeance that I risked flight. They are tired of their jobs. They confess that the struggle is over and that they have lost, but as they see no way out, and as the people are there watching them, they have to keep on. The fact that they're studying foreign languages sufficiently reveals their desires. End of Princess Who Became Peddler Tells Her Own Story of Moscow by Princess Nina Zizianov. Read by Colleen McMahon.